0: Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor, Kohler. They design innovative sinks and faucets for people who do their best work in the kitchen. Food is amazing. Well, no duh, right? But hear me out. I can walk out my door and in 10 minutes, return home with halibut, a piece of halibut, Think of all that had to happen for that fish to be caught, processed, packaged, transported to my specific grocery store, and made available to me. That process, frankly, is a wonder. Now let's talk about a more amazing example, fruit. Specifically, strawberries. You might think strawberries, ho-hum. But it used to be that strawberry season was just a few months long, peaking around June. Not too long ago, if you wanted to taste strawberries in the dead of winter, well, good luck. But these days, you get to buy big, juicy, incredibly sweet strawberries year round. It's a miracle of science. If you buy strawberries in the U.S., there's a good chance they're grown in California. That's where 90% of strawberries in the U.S. come from. Driscoll's, Nature Ripe, Giant Berry Farms, you probably know the big names. Reporter Hannah Kirshner headed to Watsonville, California, a major strawberry-growing town. It's about a two-hour drive south of San Francisco. These days, most of the strawberry pickers are migrants from Central and Latin America. But a century ago, many of them would have been Japanese.
1: These cars parked alongside the road must be the strawberry pickers. see some people in hats hunched down in the fields.
0: Today on Proof from America's Test Kitchen, the story of a third-generation strawberry farm and how it fits into the history of Japanese Americans. It's a story about the skill, creativity, and resilience of farmers to help make strawberries what they are today, big, juicy, sweet, and available 10 minutes from my home anytime I want. I'm Kevin Pang. Thanks for listening and stick around. Hey Proof listeners, it's Kevin Pang here. As a busy podcast host and dad, I'm always looking for ways to save time in the kitchen. I recently got acquainted with this heat-made graphite grill and toaster oven from the Japan-based company, Sengoku. And it's been a huge time saver. I don't have to wait for this oven to preheat thanks to Sengoku's amazing graphite heating technology. This grill reaches its maximum heat output in a second, literally. It gets hot immediately. So whether it's a piece of toast or heating up leftovers or roasting veggies, the top and bottom heating elements evenly distribute heat, bringing my meals to perfection in half the time. Proof listeners can save 10% and get free shipping by using the code ATK10 at checkout. Just go to SengokuLA.com, that's S-E-N-G-O-K-U-L-A.com to order yours today. Reporter Hannah Kirshner brings us today's story from the home of strawberry farmers Gwen and Rod Coda.
1: Gwen and Rod Coda run the Shinta Kawahara Berry Farm in Watsonville, California, and their daughter Joanna, who's 32, works with them. It's up on a hillside with a view of Monterey Bay, and the sandy loam soil here is perfect for strawberries. The day I arrive, it's sunny and cool with wind coming off the pacific ocean hi hi how are you Good. how are you Good, thank you i love the seafoam green color of your house oh thank you gwen serves sandwiches and chips and she puts a big bowl of strawberries on the table it tastes like a strawberry which is like actually it's been a while since i've had a strawberry that tasted like a strawberry it's so sweet but it still has like that nice tartness the Kodas grow a variety called Albion. They sell their Albion strawberries directly to supermarkets, to a shipper that consolidates them with berries from other farms and sends them all over the country, and in the summer, they sell them at a stand in front of the farm. By local standards, this is a small farm, and a lot of the bigger farms grow newer, higher-producing varieties of strawberries. But the kodas have stuck with Albion for more than a decade.
2: The strawberry is not a strawberry, so they've got different tastes. Of them.
1: They're slightly different
2: flavor, mm-hmm. or different plant architecture, you know, mm-hmm. or different colors, different textures, and it's kind of exciting.
1: A strawberry is not a strawberry. Researchers are developing new varieties all the time. And even within one variety, there's a ton of variation depending on the growing conditions. Joanna says after dinner, she'll sit around with her parents, eating their strawberries, and talking about why each berry in the bowl looks or tastes just a tiny bit different. Like, did it get wet? Did it not develop quite right? Did it get more sun or ripen slowly? Strawberries are an especially delicate fruit to farm, and farming is already a risky business. You're at the whims of weather and climate, the economy.
2: So people go, oh, what do you do? And this is a joke. But it's, it's just like, you know, people ask you, what do you do? Well, I'm a gambler. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 What do you do? I'm a farmer.
1: <laughs> Gwen and Rod learned the art and science of cultivating strawberries from Gwen's dad, Kuni Shinta. And he
3: loved sharing mm. with other growers, too. There's a few of us that we all Hung out with my dad and learned how to grow strawberries and learned his philosophy Thought. and mm-hmm. yeah, his thoughts about things. And his big thing is the best fertilizer is the farmer's shadow. So, you know, immersing yourself into your field. Like we live here.
1: Gwen grew up with this strawberry farm. But there's a lot of family history she didn't know until her dad Cooney's 75th birthday. This This is the trunk. trunk. Wow, it looks very old. That day, Gwen and her siblings and cousins opened up this trunk that had been sitting in the barn. It had moved from place to place as the farm grew and the family relocated. It looks like a very old travel trunk. Inside are photos and objects that tell the story of Gwen's family coming to the U.S. over 100 years ago. Gwen is the youngest of four siblings and the only one to keep farming. Her oldest sister, Diane, is the archivist of the family. She knows the family history best.
4: You know, for me, when I think about strawberries and my family, it's that in that strawberry, in eating that strawberry from the family's farm, from the family ranch, that's a taste of my family's history. You know, that is what my family's history is all about. Being here, living here, making it work here, and enjoying life.
1: The story starts with their grandmother, Hisayo. Her picture is in that trunk of treasures. That's her picture. my Bob That's John's. your grandmother? Uh-huh, that's, that's the strawberry grower. <laughs> Gwen and Diane's grandmother, Hisayo, came to the U.S. on a steamship in 1914 to marry a man she'd never met. Her husband-to-be, Genjiro Shin, had chosen her from a photo. Diane shows me a black-and-white studio portrait. Hisayo's hair is in a big updo, and she's all dressed up.
4: Very formal hair, and she's wearing a kimono and a hanten. And uh, she's in, like, a Western-style room,
1: Hisayo and her husband-to-be were both from the same town in Hiroshima. But way up in the mountains, from this little village called Kamidani. Genjiro had already been in America for several years. That's usually how it worked back then. The men would immigrate first, and then, if they got settled, their family might arrange a marriage or they'd choose a picture bride. Genjiro was a farm worker in the Santa Clara Valley, and his story was probably like a lot of the young men who left Japan around that time. In 1882, the US had passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, which banned Chinese laborers from immigrating to the US. Basically, after Chinese laborers helped build the transcontinental railroad, white Americans wanted them gone. But there was still a need for cheap labor. In the next few decades, almost 70,000 Japanese immigrated directly to the US, and they were coming via Hawaii too, about 38,000 during that same period. Japanese men helped finish the railroads in the Pacific Northwest and worked in forestry and fishery all the way up to Alaska. In California, a lot of them farmed. After the gold rush, San Francisco was a bustling port city, and there was farmland all around it. For a lot of these Japanese immigrants, farming was a natural choice. I spoke over Zoom with Emily Anderson, who is a curator at the Japanese American National Museum in Los Angeles. She explains.
5: And that was because a lot of the first immigrants were second, third, fourth sons from Japanese farms. And the way um, inheritance laws worked in Japan was the entire farm would just go directly to the oldest son.
1: So if you were not the oldest son, you weren't going to inherit property. You could try to buy land and become a farmer. You could go to a big city like Osaka or Tokyo and get a factory job. Or you could go abroad.
5: And of course, like so many other people around the world, America represented all these hopes and dreams and opportunities.
1: This was the era of westward expansion. Americans on the east coast saw the American west coast as this land of opportunity.
5: They all sort of disregarded the fact of Native American existence and all said, this land is free for us to take. And so Japanese set their eyes on that, you know, the horizon in the same way and came out to the West Coast just like other Americans and European immigrants were heading West.
1: Diane tells me their grandmother Hisayo arrived in California in 1914. Hisayo was 25 years old, coming over to marry Genjiro, a man she'd never met. And that man actually turned out to be the love of her life. Genjiro was really handsome. I saw some photos, and he could have been a movie star. Genjiro was farming in the Santa Clara Valley, south of San Francisco. In those days, everyone in a farming family had to work. Hisayo liked to keep busy and do her own thing, so Gwen and Diane think that's when she started growing strawberries.
0: Strawberries, strawberries, nice see, strawberries in the
1: Back then, way before it became Silicon Valley, the Santa Clara Valley was called the Valley of Heart's Delight. It was full of orchards growing apricots, cherries, and plums, and mostly white farmers were growing those kinds of tree fruits. Strawberries grow on small plants, close to the ground, so harvesting the berries requires crouching in the fields, picking each one by hand. And they have to be harvested every few days or they'll rot. It's intensive, physically demanding labor. The white farmers didn't want to do stooped labor, so by growing things like strawberries, Japanese farmers could avoid competition with white farmers, and you can grow a lot of strawberries on a little land. Japanese farmers in California couldn't easily get what was considered good farmland. Wide, flat expanses with rich soil. They might be more likely to get a rocky little plot on a hillside. But as curator Emily Anderson explains, they had an advantage when it came to that kind of, quote-unquote, undesirable land. Japanese immigrants coming over, most of them have been raised on farms in Japan. And if you know
5: anything about Japan, it is 80% mountains. There are very few places where you can have large-scale farming. It was all hand farming. There's very little machine farming that you could do because the land was not, you know, it was terrace farming on mountainsides. And so when they came over, you know, for a lot of them, they would look at the land that other people had passed over and think like, well, I can surely make a go of this.
1: So Hisayo and Genjiro were making a go of it. And they were putting down roots in more ways than one. Soon, they had a daughter, Mikio. But then, Genjiro got appendicitis, and he died. Hisayo had lost the love of her life, and she was suddenly a single mother. The Hiroshima Kenjinkai, which is a community organization of immigrants from Hiroshima, told Hisayo, you have to go back to Japan. It wasn't technically the Wild West anymore, but the Kenjinkai said California was no place for a woman alone. Diane picks it up from here.
4: She, in taking the big leap to leave Japan and come here and land in what she regarded as a paradise for her, she wasn't gonna leave, no matter who told her, you know, no, you have to go back. Forget it.
1: To appease the Kenjinkai, Hisayo and her late husband's friend, Wasakushinta, moved in together. Wasaku Shinta was 18 years older than Hisayo. He was a quiet man who loved hard work, and he treated Hisayo's daughter like his own. Within a few years, Hisayo and Wasaku had three more kids together and were officially married. Another photo shows four women and one man crouched picking berries in a big, flat strawberry field in the Santa Clara Valley. One of the women in the photo, it seems, is Hisayo, that valley is shielded from the Pacific Ocean by the Santa Cruz Mountains. It's the same area where Wasaku grew peas, and Gwen says the soil there was really fertile. By the way, when I talked to Gwen, she had a fan on, so you might hear a little of that in the background.
3: He actually rented land from a family named the Tompkins in this area where they call Moffat Field, which is on the border of... Mountain View, and Sunnyvale.
1: The Shintas leased their farm. They couldn't buy farmland because of alien land laws. I spoke with Connie Chang, a professor at Bowdoin College who specializes in environmental history, the history of the American West, and Asian American history. She explains California's alien land law.
6: It forbade what were called aliens ineligible for citizenship. So it forbade these aliens ineligible for citizenship to buy land or lease land for more than three years.
1: The Naturalization Act of 1790 allowed for naturalized citizenship only for free white persons. Black people were added after the Civil War, and there were some other exceptions. But the Japanese were so-called aliens ineligible for citizenship. The alien land laws didn't specifically mention the Japanese, but they were meant to target them so that they could come and work but wouldn't settle down. If you lease a piece of land for three years, that's barely long enough to make it productive. It takes time to enrich the soil and get plants established, to learn the rhythms of that particular microclimate. But the Japanese were quite ingenious. They got around the law by buying farmland in the names of their American-born children. Birthright citizenship is in the U.S. Constitution, so even if these Japanese immigrants couldn't become U.S. citizens, their children born here were automatically citizens. So farmers would buy land in the names of their minor children and appoint themselves as trustees. But then the California law was amended in 1920. And that essentially closed up that loophole. It said that anyone who placed
6: the ownership of property in other people's names were liable to be
1: prosecuted. So then you'd have to at least wait until your children were adults to buy land. And technically, even short-term leases were prohibited by the amendment, but that wasn't really enforced. So Hisayo and Wasaku Shinta were farming rented land in this place called Moffitt Field. Now that area has a Google campus, but back then it was mostly farms. Back to Gwen telling her grandparents' story. They lived there, but then the bathhouse, the Ofuro
3: house, started a fire, and I guess their house burned down.
1: They moved to a home a few miles away and commuted to the farm. In spite of one disaster after another, in spite of laws meant to keep them from settling down or climbing the economic ladder, the Shintas were thriving. Diane shows me another photo of her grandmother. One of
4: the reasons why I think my bachan stayed here is
1: this old car. The 1932 Dodge is exactly what I picture when I think of an old-timey car, boxy with a long nose and round headlights.
4: And it had, like, in the back, it had one of those spoked wheels.
1: There are five kids in the back of that car, Hisayo's first daughter, the three kids she and Wasaku had together, that includes Gwen and Diane's dad, and there's Wasaku's son from a previous marriage, too. Wasaku and the boys are in suits, the girls wear nice dresses, and Hisayo has a thick fur collar. In those days, fewer than 30% of Japanese-American strawberry farmers owned their own land, but the Shintas could own a really nice car to show they were prospering. If the Shintas had built some success as farmers, all that was about to change. World War II was going on and anti-Japanese sentiment was getting worse. There was growing concern within the Japanese-American community about their chosen home not getting along with their birth country. And then...
5: December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy.
1: The Shintas' fancy car, the farm and machinery, their home in California, they'd be forced to leave it all behind.
0: After the break, how 120,000 lives were upended, including the Shintas. Eating great food is one thing. The prep and clean up afterwards is, well, something else. That's where Kohler comes in. When prepping for recipes, you can tell the voice-controlled faucets to dispense measured amounts of water. Kohler's faucets also feature a sweep spray to quickly get any gunk off of your dishes. Even if your hands are messy, you can wave on and off the touchless faucets. That way, you can clean with ease. Visit Kohler.com to learn more. It's summer, and there's nothing like biting into sweet, juicy, peak season fruit. I'm a huge fan of mangoes, hashtag Mangalasi, and my six year old helped plant strawberries this year. The strawberry fruit tarts we made have been so delicious. Lucky for me, OXO has a number of tools that will make it easier for my family to enjoy a bounty of fruit this summer. And OXO's strawberry huller will make it easy for my six year old to enjoy all those berries he'll gather from our yard, or at least the ones the rabbits don't eat. Find your tools at OXO.com. Right now, OXO is offering a special discount for proof listeners. Just use the code ATK15 for 15% off on OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO. Better. Guaranteed. A lot of companies we know and love began as a shared family dream. That origin story is similar for the Veroni family. You know the one. They've been making authentic Italian charcuterie since 1925. The five Veroni brothers made it their mission to produce high-quality charcuterie from their family's roots in a small town in the Emilia-Romagna region. It's the home of beloved meats like Italian prosciutto, mortadella, and other great salamis. Today, the fourth generation of Veronis are producing genuine Italian cured meats and sharing them with the world. For more information on the Veroni family's recipes, artisanal techniques, and meats, visit Veroni.com. That's V E R O N I.com. And now, back to our story.
1: After the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, the U.S. declared war on Japan.
5: The people of the United States have already formed their opinions and well understand the implications to the very life and safety of our nation.
1: And at home in the U.S., anti-Japanese prejudice turned into policy. Within the day, even before war was declared against Japan, FBI agents showed up at hundreds of homes of Japanese American community leaders, leaders from Buddhist temples, civic organizations, and even some farmers. And without any due process, these community leaders were taken away. The Japanese property in the United States will be seized at once. A few months later, on February 19th, 1942, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt announced Executive Order 9066. Professor Connie Chang explains what that executive order meant. So it basically
6: authorized the full-scale removal of Japanese Americans, and that was the intent of the executive order as well. So within a couple of weeks, Japanese Americans began to be removed from their homes on the Pacific coast.
1: It started on Bainbridge Island in Washington state, then all the way through Oregon and California. Everyone of Japanese ancestry was forced to leave. There was no due process, no grounds for suspicion that any of them were actually spies, yet the U.S. government claimed this was necessary.
0: Some among them were potentially dangerous. Most were loyal. But no one knew what would happen among this concentrated population if Japanese forces should try to invade our shores. Military authorities therefore determined that all of them, citizens and aliens alike, would have to move.
1: At that point, California was producing about 27 million pounds of strawberries a year, and about 95% of them were grown by Japanese Americans. If Hisayo had planted strawberries that year, she didn't get to harvest them. Here's curator Emily Anderson. One of the things that to me is one of the
5: most heartbreaking details is that this all happened in the spring. So February 19th is when the executive orders passed, but most people sort of were picked up in like April and May. And so for all of these farmers, many of them had crops like a month from harvest. Some of them wanted to just torch their fields, you know? Like, I have to abandon my fields. I'm gonna, like, burn it to the ground. But they were told by the government that we were in a war. This is necessary food for the country. You have to keep caring for these crops until the moment that you leave, but someone else is gonna come and harvest and profit off of that labor.
1: First, people were taken temporarily to these so-called assembly centers. The Shintas were sent to Santa Anita Assembly Center in Southern California. Professor Connie Chang explains what the conditions were like.
6: That was a horse track, a horse racing track. The other one in the Bay Area was uh, called Tanforan in San Bruno, California. That was also a horse racing track. So you had thousands of
1: Japanese Americans who were living in horse stalls. With nothing more than what they could carry, the Shintas, Hisayo, Wasaku, and their five kids— were held there for months. Diane explains what happened next.
4: And then they were put on a train and sent to Wyoming. And Mountain was very desolate, but that's where they spent the Second World War.
1: There were ten main camps in desolate parts of the West and in Arkansas, built hastily on deserts and swamplands. You might have heard these places referred to as internment camps, and at the time the government euphemistically called this process relocation or evacuation, but it's more accurate to call it incarceration. The camps were surrounded by barbed wire with armed guards. The Shintas were sent to one called Heart Mountain. 10,000 Japanese Americans were incarcerated at Heart Mountain, so the camp suddenly became the third or fourth biggest town in the state of Wyoming. Like the Shinta kids, about two-thirds of the people in the camps were American citizens. They'd gone to American schools and recited the Pledge of Allegiance. Lots of them were Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts. Gwen and Diane's dad, Kuni Shinta, was 17 years old that year. He was a quiet, athletic young man who liked to play basketball. It was his last year of high school. Gwen talks about his circumstances. It was hard, I
3: think. I'm sure he would have liked to go to college, but, you know, since they were interned, he didn't have the opportunity.
1: Everyone incarcerated in the camps had to fill out a questionnaire. Colloquially, it's called the loyalty questionnaire. It asked about things like your religion, points if you were Christian, and hobbies, points deducted for karate or judo, and asked you to forswear loyalty to the Japanese emperor a particularly confusing and insulting question for those born in the U.S. The government used that questionnaire to determine if you were eligible for the draft, and if you were considered, quote-unquote, disloyal, you were sent to a separate camp. The questionnaire was also used to determine if you were eligible for temporary leave to work on farms, where Japanese-American labor was still needed. Gwen says that her dad, Cooney worked outside camp.
3: And... So he went to go work as a field worker. Like, he'd always say, oh, we, we uh, used to work in the potato fields or the sugar beet fields.
1: So instead of working on the family farm, which they'd been forced to abandon, Cooney became a seasonal laborer for other farmers. The conditions inside the camps were pretty bleak. Each family got a single room in a barracks, with only a thin wall separating them from the next family. You could hear everything, and you had no privacy. You ate in a big mess hall. Here's curator Emily Anderson again. I know several people who will never, ever again
5: eat apple butter because of camp. They hate apple butter with, like, the heat of a thousand suns. Um, Like, Vienna sausages. So it was a lot of processed foods, a lot of, you know, hard-to-identify meats. And the vegetables were usually canned and, like, nothing was good. People had a lot of digestive issues in the beginning.
1: But the U.S. government had a plan to make all the camps self-sufficient.
5: They're like, we have a whole population of people who can provide labor, so we should, you know, basically set up commercial farms for each of these, as well as poultry farms, hog farms, cattle farms, as part of the, the whole complex. and make each of these self-sustaining. This was partly out of, you know, a cost-saving measure. Also, they were trying to confront a lot of the, the criticism from people who thought that these were facilities where Japanese were being
1: coddled. So while they were incarcerated, Japanese Americans began, once again, to transform the land. Heart Mountain in the Wyoming desert is a really different environment from coastal California where you can grow things pretty much year-round. It's dry, it's really hot in the summer and really cold in the winter. But it wasn't just Californians like the Shintas there. There were also farmers from Yakima, Washington who had some experience with cold winters. And together, they came up with ways to farm this harsh landscape. Here's Professor Connie Chang.
6: Heart Mountain is actually a really kind of very inspiring example because again, this is not an area that was really hospitable to farming. and yet Hart Mountain becomes this like major success story where through the expertise and uh, determination of the Japanese American farmers, they were able to make Hart Mountain into a place that produced a fair amount of crops. They plowed about 1,400 acres and ultimately produced over 2 million pounds of produce.
1: They never achieved total self-sufficiency, but they did create really productive farmland within the camps. And also, a lot of people in the camps grew their own victory gardens right in front of their barracks.
5: What can we do to help win the war with food? Victory gardens. So long as this war lasts, Great quantities of food must be grown.
1: All over the country, Americans were encouraged to help with the war effort by growing Victory Gardens, and Japanese-Americans participated inside the camps, too. Curator Emily Anderson says the Victory Gardens and farms in the camps were also an opportunity for the incarcerated to get more Japanese food back into their diet.
5: So their seed salesmen, who got permission to get somebody to get, like, their seeds out of storage so that they could grow things like gobo, you know, it's burdock root, or, you know, napa cabbage, or these different things that were more familiar to the Japanese palate.
1: People figured out how to make camp life bearable. They set up Buddhist temples and holiday activities. They made baseball teams. You had in Heart Mountain actually
5: the most famous Drum and Bugle Corps of all the 10 camps because the Drum and Bugle Corps of a Boy Scout troop in Los Angeles got permission to take
1: all of their equipment, all their instruments, to Wyoming. Some young men volunteered or were drafted into the Army. And that Drum and Bugle Corps would play taps
5: and be the honor guard for memorial services when the older young men in the camp were killed in action.
1: If you refused the draft or didn't show up to your fitness test, you were sent to federal prison. That's what happened to Cooney's older brother. Heart
5: Mountain is one of the places that had a very organized draft resistance movement. You know, they would print flyers that had things, you know, quoting Patrick Henry and basically saying, because we are Americans, we believe in dissent and civil disobedience. And until you let our families out, we refuse to serve in the army. The second you let us out. We will happily go and even die for our country on the fields of Europe. But until you let us out of this prison, how dare you draft us? And for that stance, they were charged with federal crimes, tried, convicted, and put in federal prison.
1: I mean, can you imagine being told your freedom is a threat to America, but you still have a duty to die for your country? The 442nd Regiment was all Japanese-American. And curator Emily Anderson says that a lot of those young men did die or come home with serious injuries.
5: They were on the ground in forests of Europe fighting for their country while their families were behind barbed wire.
1: Japanese Americans were banned from returning to the Pacific coast until 1945. Finally, about three years after being removed from their home, the Shintas were allowed to return to California. They were given $25 and a one-way ticket. The farmland Japanese-Americans had developed was auctioned off cheaply, mostly to returning GIs, to white veterans. Many Japanese-American farmers were once again starting from nothing. Hundreds of farmers returning from the camps were recruited by the big Driscoll Strawberry Associates Cooperative and Sheehy Berry Farms to work as laborers or sharecroppers in California But lots of people had nowhere to go. They had to stay in a Buddhist temple or move to a trailer park. The Shintas, fortunately, were able to move in with a relative who owned a home. But while they were incarcerated, someone else had taken over their leased farmland. Diane picks up the story.
4: This is actually kind of the tragedy about my grandfather. He was quite old then. You know, he was already in his 70s. So he was too old to really start over.
1: And that was the case for many Issei, the first generation of Japanese immigrants. If they didn't have family, they just sort of fell through the cracks, especially Issei bachelors. Some committed suicide and many died in poverty. Since Wasaku was too old to start over, the kids had to support the family. The Shinta family didn't have the time or capital to start a farm again— So Kuni worked at a cold storage facility, driving a forklift. Gwen says her dad never talked much about camp. He just kept moving forward.
3: And you just did what you had to do. I think that's one of the big things about the Japanese story. They always did what you had to do to move forward. I think that was hard. But it was one of those things that you accepted because... You had to make it, and your family had to make it.
1: Kuni kept working and saving his money until he could buy the family a house on four acres in Sunnyvale. The Shintas looked around and saw that strawberry farmers had nice cars and brand-new tractors. So Hisayo, who was in her 60s at that point, she started growing strawberries on those few acres behind the house, and she hired her friends to help. Kuni helped on the farm evenings and weekends. And in 1952, he married a young woman named B. Kawahara. Diane says Kuni and B. met at a Buddhist temple in San Jose.
4: So they would have, um, it's called uh, Young Buddhist Association, so a YBA, and they would have dances and things. And I think my parents met at one of those dances.
1: B. was also from a farming family. She was pretty, social, and good at math. She'd gone to secretary school, and her accounting skills became an asset to the Shinta family strawberry business. By the 50s, the annual California strawberry harvest was four times the pre-war high. Gwen says that was when her dad made a big decision.
3: And I think they could see that they were doing pretty well. And my dad kind of had this passion for growing things and farming the strawberries. So he stopped working at the cold storage, and he and my mom joined forces with my grandmother (laughs) to do the farming.
1: Pretty soon, they bought a bigger piece of land in San Jose. The farm was growing, and so was the family. Cooney and Bee had four kids. Diane, the oldest, remembers helping to pick berries. Well, I remember being hard, (laughs) really (laughs) backbreaking. And for, you know, my 10-year-old self, um, not too pleasant. (laughs) Diane remembers her dad would be out there in the fields in his khaki shirt tucked into khaki pants with red-wing work boots. And Gwen says her dad always had his eye on the next thing.
3: He was driven to always do his best, you know, always have a good farm, grow nice strawberries, learn all the... Newest innovations, newest cultural type practices, and then also work with researchers to find out what the next step is, what the new and coming thing was.
1: Times were changing. By the 70s, the farmland around Cooney's strawberry fields in San Jose was turning into residential neighborhoods. So Cooney moved the farm up to Watsonville. Where researchers from UC Davis were developing new varieties of strawberries, varieties that could transform the industry. Cooney was testing some of those varieties in his field. Cooney and Bee would often have the UC Davis researchers over to dinner at their house, and one of them was a guy known as Dr. Strawberry, Royce Bringhurst. Some of Bringhurst's varieties did transform the industry. They produced big, red, conical fruit that was firm enough to ship to the East Coast without any damage. A 1977 article from California Farmer reports Kunishinta's record-breaking harvest with a new variety called Aiko, and describes him as a recognized leader among coastal strawberry growers. This is perhaps the biggest innovation, varieties that were day-neutral. Older varieties produce berries for a couple of months in spring, and then they taper off. With day-neutral varieties, fruit production doesn't depend on the length of daylight. You can grow them almost year-round. Now, Gwen and Rod harvest strawberries all the way from February through November. They met in agricultural college, and by the time they graduated, Gwen Shinta had become Gwen Coda. They still farm the big V-shaped piece of land that Cooney bought in Watsonville, Right now, about 15 of their 65 acres are planted with Albion strawberries, the kind I tasted when I arrived. There are cover crops on the other fields.
2: You have a light lime colored green, which is my newly planted Piper Sudan grass cover crop, summertime cover crop. You have a darker green where the strawberry plants are. And then you have another field that is Cayuse oats, I believe.
1: About 20 workers are busy harvesting berries to sell, but I follow Rod to the test plot.
2: So we're going to have fun trying different types of strawberries.
1: We crouched between the raised rows of strawberry plants. These new varieties don't have names yet, just numbers.
2: That selection process takes 7 to 10 years from cross-pollinating of the flower. It will take maybe seven years if you're lucky to get into production like this in a field, a grower's field.
1: Part of the reason why it takes so long is that strawberries are genetically complex.
2: Shall we eat? Yeah.
1: More berries? Yeah, let's eat some berries. (laughs) The first one I taste is not so flavorful. Right. (laughs) But it
2: might have other characteristics. It's still part of the breeding. Mm -hmm. It might have other characteristics that may be of value to farmers.
1: They're looking for things like disease tolerance, resistance to soil pathogens, better heat tolerance, and another thing is what Rod calls plant architecture.
2: Now we're going to try this one that is, uh, um, the size of the plant is a nice size.
1: If the plant's really bushy and the berries are hidden under the leaves, it's harder for the pickers. I can see with these big plants, it's like you have to look a little harder for the berries and bend down more to see them. With so, those little compact plants over there, it looks like yes. you can just see the berries. The berries come in different shapes too. This one's really long and pointy, and it's so shiny and dark red. Different colors. It's like but pinkish, like some orange, of these other red. ones, they're, they're, it's kind of orange. Yeah. A whole range of flavors. Whoa almost tastes like melon or something. It's got sort of like a richness to it. Different textures.
2: I kind of like it soft, but sometimes right now it's nice to have it soft, but later in the season when the day length is long and things, it ends up being more problematic because the berry could get too soft.
1: Any one of the trial varieties in Rod's field right now could turn out to be the next big thing that transforms the industry.
2: And like Gwen says, a strawberry is not a strawberry. You know? And that's what we've always thought.
1: The California strawberry is part of the Japanese-American story, and it represents the labor and ingenuity of generations of immigrants from lots of places. Something that strikes me is this repetition in American history. The labor of immigrants is needed, but then, especially if they're not white, they're not welcome to stay. They aren't treated as fully American. Going all the way back to people forcibly taken from Africa to help build the United States on land taken from indigenous people, through Asian immigrants in the 19th and 20th century, and people coming from Central and South America today. Still, the taste I'm left with isn't only bitter there's the sweetness of what Diane said, that the taste of a strawberry from their family farm is the taste of their family living here, making it work, and enjoying life.
0: A strawberry is really not just a strawberry. Thanks to reporter Hannah Kirshner for bringing us this story. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters
3: I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer, Caitlin Kelleher.
0: I'm Terrence
2: Johnson, and I'm the associate producer.
6: I'm Alex Curran Cartarelli, and I'm also an associate producer. I'm Vanessa Bartlett, and I'm the production intern.
5: I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer.
0: Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton, Chester Guazda, and Anya Grzesznik of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds Composer Theme Music, additional music by Kyle Forster and Jordan Pearson.
1: Ken Margolis
0: is our director of post-production, and our director of production is...
2: Diane Knox.
0: Fact-checking and additional research by...
3: Angela Yang.
0: Special thanks to Gwen, Rod, and Joanna Coda for welcoming Hannah to their farm, Diane Shinta Durst for sharing family history, Emily Anderson, George Aseri, and their colleagues at the Japanese American National Museum, and historian Connie Chang at Bowdoin College. Thanks also to the folks at denshow.org for sharing their expertise and to our production intern, Vanessa Bartlett, for tracking down archival audio. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen and David Nussbaum is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors, Kohler, OXO, Sana, Sengoku, and Veroni. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.